Hello, kaiju enthusiasts, and welcome to Go Go Godzilla. I'm Emily Schmemley. I'm Victor Perfecto. And I'm Justin Kizon. And today we are going to be talking about the 1954 Godzilla film, the first in the series. Godzilla 1954, directed by Ishiro Honda, the first one to be produced by Toho Films, of course, and in Godzilla's suit is... The gentleman in the suit, of course, being the famous Mr. Haruo Nakajima, and also, slightly lesser well-known, another gentleman in the suit, Mr. Katsumi Tezuka. Tetsuka also had to struggle wearing that suit as well. <laughs> There's a Herculean effort th- to that requires being in the Godzilla suit, and anyone who's ever attempted it deserves at least a shout, and we, we will get into that. Yeah. Absolutely. This film was written by Takeo Murata and Shiro Honda as yeah. well. So let's talk about the beginning, and in, in, in terms of the simplest place to begin the discussion, which is inspiration. Where do you think is the, the biggest inspiration point for Godzilla? Monster movies are big, and a, uh, a popular one specifically at the time was The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Today we think of monster movies, specifically giant monster movies, as it's very associated with Japan, but at the time that was not the case. We were dealing with a lot of American imports, uh, King Kong was very big. Yeah, we can't we can't talk about Godzilla without talking about King Kong. King Kong is a shadow that all giant monsters live under, and that even includes Godzilla, a movie from the 1930s. King Kong is pretty much the, the, the nexus point. And what everyone looked at, even the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, I, it, beyond even King Kong, like, there are plenty of other like giant stop motion creatures, uh, giant stop motion dinosaurs are wrecking amok in, in yeah. cities. But Emily, I wanted to bring up, what exactly was it about these 20,000 Fathoms you felt like you wanted to bring up first in terms of inspiration points for Godzilla? Um, it was definitely big. I mean, it, it was definitely something that Tanaka uh, name checked, the producer of the film, was yes. like, uh, this is this is what is popular now. This is what we're kind of tra- trying to get into, and you can also see. I mean, you can see the direct inspirations in terms of like a giant horrifying monster from the deep sea springing right. and wrecking havoc. You can kind of see the line there. Yeah, Absolutely. Quite, quite yeah. frankly, the original name of the project because there's it's sometime before we even gets the name Godzilla. Mm-hmm. One of the working titles of it was in fact the giant monster from twenty thousand leagues under the sea. Kaite Nimanli Karakita Daikaiju. And at that point, it was going to be a giant octopus before it was Godzilla. A lot of workshopping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Vic, there was a problem with Japan technically making it a stop motion film. Can you want to dive into that a little oh, bit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, here's the thing. You know, one of the other things, it's almost easy for to, to overlook this because it's been so long, but Godzilla is a work in progress that basically codifies by doing. And right down to it, like, this is the first film of its nature, and it sets the rules, but the rules literally didn't exist at this point. When they reached out to folks to execute this movie, Eiji Tsuburaya is the special effects artist they went to. He His bona fides come from doing miniatures for war movies, very realistic stuff. And, you know, he admired film and watched the process. So stop motion was, in fact, a you know, a technique that was considered for this film, because why wouldn't you try that? But it was determined that to do stop motion for the kind of movie they ended up needing to do, it would be too time intensive and too expensive. He actually put a, an actual timeline of how long it would take to do all the visual effects shots for Godzilla. Do you recall it was like seven, seven years? Seven years? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Somewhere in that neighborhood. Like, just just to be able to do it to that level of craft for the kind of monster stuff we see in it. And... and then as now, Japan trying to reach for what Hollywood does is like a too far away a finish line. You have to kind of keep in mind that Hollywood, even in the 1950s, is still the yeah. place that movies get made. So they have all these resources. They did not in Japan as much as they would have liked to. So they had to find another solution. And basically what it ended up coming down to, the most economical thing, again, uh, 
Mr. Superride does come from a background of miniatures, so we'd definitely still be using those for the buildings and for for all for all those sundries. But as far as the monster itself, it'd be a combination of miniature work and a technique that would eventually become known as suitmation. Mm. Literally wearing a costume and filming it to make it look like a beast. To move as the beast inside the costume, we we do go back to Haru Nakajima and uh, Katsumi Tetsuka. This is not an easy thing to wear. <laughs> no. <laughs> Herculean. And uh, once more, this movie sets the pattern, and of course they would refine it. But the, the very f- first, first Godzilla suit was too immobile to move in. Yeah. Like, they had to make up the technique of producing the costume, and their first trial of it with very hard rubber ended up being nigh impossible to move in. That scrap suit ended up being recycled as... Uh, unit pieces for close-ups, like for like basically they like, fashioned, like the feet. Yeah, they yeah. fashioned a pair of trousers the feats, from the bottom the chunk. <laughs> <laughs> they they fashioned a pair of trousers from the bottom chunk that Nakajima could wear, uh, like pants with suspenders for close-ups of the stomping. Right, but otherwise, which is that's a famous image that the listener might be familiar with. Yes, yeah, so him in that in the pants. And if not, look that up. It's delightful. It is yeah. delightful. Um, I, I would like someone to actually mass produce this as a wearable thing to wear on at a show. I would like to wear it. Oh, <laughs> <man>. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be very deep cut cosplay but that, ooh, ooh, that is a good cosplay actually <laughs> thank you for that i might consider that <laughs> but yeah uh, be that as it may no the basically uh part of why uh Haruo nakajima is so well known and so respected by kaiju fans is the sheer strength and endurance that came from being the man in the godzilla suit mm, yeah even with the revised version of the costume which is uh, here's you know a little bit all godzilla suits that are made new are nicknamed per film always called something Godzi. And in this case, Shodai being a term that means first generation, this suit became known as Shodai Godzi. And wearing that first suit basically meant having to maneuver through one of the stiffer incarnations of it and having to deal with stomping through the cities, yeah. being under studio lighting that ended up being like, you know, white hot light, being in that pool, it was that suit was essentially a death trap. But yeah, you hear like Nagajima talking about how like just standing in pools of his own sweat at the yeah. bottom of the suit because yeah. it, it was just... filled yeah. with yeah. sweat. That's yeah. how much he can fill a cup. You can fill a teacup of just his sweat. And that's a disgusting image. <laughs> and I'm sorry yeah. that you went through that consistently, Nagajima. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we salute you, sir. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, Ke- and Tetsuka, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Gentlemen. Um, but that's the thing is like, even like one of the big scenes in the film where like Godzilla is being attacked by like literal fire and like mm. and like missiles, it he, really seems like they're just firing bottle rockets at him. Yeah, no, there's there's nothing more like like we're figuring this out as we go along. If you look at that shot, that's and you kind of realize they're figuring this out as they go along. That shot is just full of danger in literally every fashion. Yeah, it's it's just them going. All right, Nakajima, you just have to walk through the water as real li- as we're gonna shoot real bottle rockets at you. I'm sorry, what was that last part? And go, Nakajima, go. <laughs> Walking in a straight line was basically the challenge and the goal of every shot, and uh, and it was a goal to get to, but he did it in flying colors. And I do want to take a moment. It's sadly, I, the three of us have, in different ways, I'm sure, have had to defend these movies from a lot of naysayers uh, for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I really take umbrage at people who take pot shots at, a, at suitmation as being a cheap jack technique, because there is an honest-to-God craft and art 
in the production of the suit and the production of the models. I get actually pretty cranky about people. I mean, I know it's a part of pop cultural lexicon, but like, you know, trying to act like it's a, it's a refrigerator box with a building windows painted on it is, it's a falsehood. These are intricate models yeah. and very realistic suits. The thing is too, Suitmation was their second choice, but it was the right choice to make because I think conveying both Godzilla as a living being and the sheer mass of him mm-hmm. ultimately being in that difficult to maneuver suit, I really do think gave a certain amount of like credibility uh, to the Godzilla character. Yeah, I mean, you look at the end result, and you—it's very obvious how like truly innovative it was. I mean, for a fraction of the cost and production time of stop motion, the end result is a movie that I think looks so much better for it. Right. And the composite work in the movie is really excellent. You get this sense of motion and, and life from Godzilla Absolutely. that you don't get from any of the stop-motion movies you see at the time. Nothing breaks my heart more than knowing to what degree Ray Harryhausen hated Godzilla. <laughs> I, and I love Ray Harryhausen, too, but it's there is something I could say about like the fact that like it's weird how like like stop-motion, and I love stop-motion. Mm. I, I, I have Same. a great respect. Yeah, I have a great respect for stop-motion as well. But there is something about stop-motion where it, that ages a film in a good way. It mm. does ages the film's visual effects. Whereas the great thing about Assumation is that, and especially because they kept doing it, and it's, yeah. it be, it stopped being a necessity, became part of the style, that you can see that it just sort of feels like a cohesive series of movies because it's always somebody in a suit. It's that case of, it's somebody actually in front of camera. It's actually an in-camera, it's a legitimately the in-camera effect yeah. of somebody in a costume literally moving around a real set that's not composited. They are in a legitimately real set of tiny buildings, but a real set buildings nonetheless. Yeah. And it's all in camera with no little trickery other than a couple of shots they do do, which are great still. Mm-hmm. And that actually allows the film to still stay very timely. Mm-hmm. But it's not just how Godzilla looks. It's also how Godzilla sounds. And we got some very iconic starting points with this first film because the sounds and the music you yeah. hear in this film basically continues on through the rest of uh, Godzilla's further appearance. These are just as important as Godzilla's look, music, and how Godzilla sounds. Yeah, no one ever really workshops away the sound of Godzilla. There is a correct way that Godzilla roars that does get refined and fine-tuned, but it's always working off the skeleton of that original sound, a sound that, uh, for all you, uh, here's another factoid, uh, the official comic book spelling of the Godzilla roar, Screeonk, that's K-R-E-E-E-O-N-K, varying multiplications of the E's and the O's. So this leads us into talking about Akira Ikufube, the composer of the film, and somehow, also, as well, he actually helped come up with the sound effects of Godzilla, which kind of isn't usually the job of a composer. (laughs) Yes, He does it all. He does it all. Akira Ifukube, in a lot of ways, is the lifeblood of Godzilla in ways that you don't even think about. It's easy to think about the look of Godzilla, but the fact that Ifukube is both responsible for the motifs that musically Godzilla and the literal roar that's associated with Godzilla is, it's a kind of a, it's, it's remarkable. Now, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the information I'm going to be bringing up now all comes from, uh, the akiraikafube.org website, kind of the leading website about Akira Ikufube, and apparently the person who's running outside is also currently in the process of writing an actual biography of him with the consent of the family. So this is about as uh, legit information as we're going to get. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, very simply, uh, producer Tanaka, and we'll talk yep. more about producer Tanaka yep. very soon, yep. uh, offered the the film to Ikufube. There's an interesting thing about Akira's kind of approach or uh, perspective on the film. Mm-hmm. He saw the film as anti-technology. That was what was, I thought was really interesting. This is what we're talking about, again, yep. post-war 
Japan. The part of Japan you think Kube is from is a rural area, essentially, correct? Yeah, the yeah. Research you did, right? Yeah. And while, you know, like, not going too much into it, but there is a fascinating part of, like, after the, after the you know, Japan technically lost in the war, mm-hmm. lost to the high technology that America had. And he had interesting conflicting thoughts about that. The fact is, like, oh, we can never beat, that's why we lost. We can't beat America. So when he read the script of Godzilla... He really felt connected to a couple things. One, oh, cool, a giant monster. I can create great music to a giant monster. But two, he saw that as like, look at what technology has done to our country. And he saw that as a point of view for him, which is funny because that's not how Honda saw it. Yeah, that's interesting. But that's what inspired him to, to agree to the project. Let's also do a quick debunk. Whenever people talk about like how long uh, in terms of, of Ikikubu's writing the score... That it took him three to four days, less than a week, to do the whole film score. On the official website, they want to point out that, like, okay, let's let's be clear. That is that is actually normally the case in Japanese films. For most Japanese films, it took three to four days. Even Akira has admitted he's done scores for that's probably even Godzilla films after this that took three to four days to do the whole score. Mm-hmm. Godzilla 54 was actually one of the rare occurrences where it actually didn't wasn't the case. He actually got a chance to see footage earlier, which is not the normal. And that's kind of leads into kind of his uh, relationship with uh, Tsuburaya. Which is how he saw some footage, really. Right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was really... this. This um. So this this piece of information uh, we first saw on the um, the Criterion. The Criterion disc has an interview with him, which is very interesting. And he talks about basically just he would go and hang out at, like, the local bar by the studio and get yeah. drunk. And... <laughs> the isekai like one does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and, his, it, and then he had a drinking buddy whose name he never knew. Uh, <laughs> until, until they both met at a meeting at their job. <laughs> it's like, yeah, and that his drinking buddy was A.G. Subaraya. <laughs> yeah. Head of the special effects. And, yeah, the way the story goes, it's almost like, here's like, you work here too? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and then he asked to see some of the footage, which was not being shown to anyone at that point. But even because, Honda. Yeah. Honda was, even even Honda was not allowed to see this. Yeah. <laughs> but because they had had that relationship, he's like, yeah, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll sh- you want to see something cool? <laughs> Check this out. It's like, it's so funny now that we live in the future on the other side of this. Like, I'm sh- so many, like, you know, like kaiju fans think of the idea of being at a bar. Yes. With Akira Ifukube and Eiji Subaraya, it, it's it's mind boggling, and not knowing who the you know, it's like they were just hanging out. Yeah. They were just buddies. Like, oh, that's my drinking buddy. That's <laughs> <laughs> my so drinking buddy, Eiji. What up, Eiji? Yeah. <laughs> now, I I do as we brought like we brought before. Somehow the composer also came up with the famous iconic yes. Godzilla song, Sam. Which either, like, the, the score to this movie or the roar, would they're both iconic on their own. Right. So it is, it's truly wild that he did both. Yeah. But this is one of my favorite informations I learned from the Akira Ifugube, like, .org site. Yeah. So when Honda brought up the idea, uh, like, hey, I think I want Godzilla to have a, a, a roar. Mm-hmm. Apparently, uh, Akira was very literal-minded. <laughs> and as, as, as the story goes, is that he was dubious to give uh, Godzilla any sounds because lizards don't have vocal cords. <laughs> and certainly not roars. So. Oh, bless him. <laughs> so he felt like, oh, scientifically, that wouldn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Honda uh, apparently decided to basically go like, okay, what if um, the... What if... What if the H-bomb <laughs> mutated him? Yeah. Maybe... Maybe he can roar because of the atomic radiation. That's <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, oh man, I guess that would make sense. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that I mean, tracks. Yeah, that tracks. And yeah. like, yeah, just remember, and I'm imagining Honda going, 
I, I guess he finally agreed after that. <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> Whatever it takes. Yeah. You know, one of the great joys of researching this film and researching the people is like really kind of finding out how just like how studiously minded Akira Ifukube was. He seems like such a thoughtful uh, gentleman who thinks, you know, who knows that he's a journeyman, but also has some very kind of deep thoughts about the art of film and mm. and, and and sound for it and telling stories with 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 score. Yeah, if you get the Criterion. Godzilla collection it is really the interview that's in there is really great where you actually get to hear his kind of perspective on all of that yeah he he like almost goes into a full-on lecture on making music for films and it like it's really good yeah I can't we none of us here can do that justice you have to actually <laughs> watch this feature on uh, on its own highly um, recommend so the roar the actually the the birth of the films where actually came from an old contrabass base that they found it had and apparently had a missing back. <laughs> I think we also found out that that Ifukube just tended to favor contrabass in his pieces. Too. Yeah. It was also an old standby of his. Yeah, mm-hmm. he just had them around. I I'd also even heard that they experiment with with compositing animal sounds and nothing quite came together correctly that way either. Yeah. It just ended up sounding like an amplified version of whatever animals they're sampling. But messing around with uh, with the old contrabass, they found the sound and yeah. just what exactly is the process well basically it was like they recorded the contrabass and yeah it's, it's funny when you now know that it's like contrabass was the origin mm-hmm. it's like oh yeah oh i can, yeah, hear, can it. hear it yeah so you just hear they kind of like kind of recorded that and then obviously with further editing amplified and, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of went through some other filters to create something that's even more uh beastly you yeah, know was it a glove that was run across the string your glove was running across the string yeah, yeah. exactly um, so that's how the roar came to be. There's a hilarious story how the footsteps yeah. came to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those booming foot again, this is this is a monster that's that's fifty meters tall. The way they conveyed the sheer mass of Godzilla is one of the great joys of this movie, and that again comes through sound design and again, happy accidents. Ikifubi actually like uh Knocked on, actually got, actually knocked a uh, amplifier box. Yeah, <laughs> a, a technician Just named a good whack. Yeah, a, a technician named uh, Kitaro uh, Tonegawa, I believe. Yeah, he it was actually his own built amplifier box. <laughs> yeah, but once he did the kick, it made this amazing boom sound. And the conversation that had to occur, <laughs> Tonegawa was not happy about. Yeah. It. <laughs> Tonegawa was not happy about the prospect of his base of yeah. his amp being kicked more. But <laughs> he's like, "I'm sorry, I just kicked your amp. Can I do it again? <laughs> how many? How many times are you thinking? Like, like once? I, well, he walks a lot. Yeah. He spends about ninety percent of his movie walking. Okay, maybe you just really? record ten times and we're good. Yeah. Uh, I just really want to kick the heck out of this thing. <laughs> And boy, he he kicked the hell. Out of yeah, <laughs> but the proofs in the pudding—it's—it's it's what you see. Like, yeah. like it's so effective. It's so effective too, and I think just the fact that they. You know, they were not using animal sounds for the war. Godzilla doesn't sound like any other animal on Earth. Well, let's even... He doesn't you know, walk like any other yeah. animal on the Earth yeah. because of the amplifier, yeah. yeah. Well, let's, well, you know, like Brass Tacks, if you haven't watched this movie, and you really should because we're not one of those review podcasts, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the first things you hear when you hear that movie is you hear the footsteps. Yeah. Nothing but these thundering footsteps over, over nothing and that roar. Yeah. And then the song. So yeah. basically, the first impression of Godzilla you get is all Maestro Ifukube. Yeah. yeah. True. It, Before, yeah. yeah. Sorry. I was just saying, it's such a smart way to open the movie, too, because you hear that and all you know is that whatever is making those sounds is going to look like something you've never seen before. Absolutely. Yeah. 
It's a great way to lead into, like, because uh, you have to kind of, like, form your own imagination of what you think Godzilla would be. It's yeah. about the 20-minute mark when we finally see him. So all of those things kind of have to be, it's it's it's, it's, it's like Jaws. It's uh, it's connecting the dots with the mm. unseen and with the herd. Yeah. yeah. And think about that, right? It's like, so already at this point, we already discussed over the visual how Godzilla was created and the sound of how Godzilla was created. And so, like, by the 20-minute mark, it's this melding of all the things we talked about. It's yeah. Super Eyes, the design, and it's people coming up with the suit. It's Nakajima or Tetsuka. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or the, the hand in the puppet. Actually, wasn't yeah, it the yeah. hand in the puppet? The was- puppet's the first version of Godzilla you see. That's okay, true. so, yeah, uh, uh, folks at home, you know about the suit. But a lot of extensive work was also done with a Godzilla hand puppet, mm. and I love him. I kind of do love the puppet. Yeah, the hand, the puppet version of Godzilla is cute. Yeah. He's, he's just a little yeah. cutie. A, lo- a lot of the atomic breath comes from the puppet. And, yeah, and he's not necessarily completely on model with the suit. <laughs> no, but I, I love him all the same. Yeah. So uh, Toho or Bandai, if you're listening, I want like the suspender pants <laughs> and a. And a, and a 54 style puppet. Those you know the Bandai like headquarters in America used to be right down the street from here. I know. I think about that every time. <laughs> yeah. Every time we drive over here. <laughs> yes. the, the, the nice folks. Yeah, but please, the please, I, I implore the nice folks uh, at Bandai Japan to please make this merchandise that you will never sell to us. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It'd be nice to know it's there. Okay, but well, we talk a lot about the people who created uh, like created Godzilla, but we actually never really brought up the creator of Godzilla. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a little bit of a mini sidebar in a sense, just as a little thing, as, you know, I'm assuming unless you're uh, like maybe in, in, in one like overseas listening for some reason, you're probably from North America or Canada. <laughs> Be that as it may, there's a real, a real Western notion of creation. We do like to condense our creation myths to, to someone having an epiphany moment, you know, Siegel and Schuster come up with Superman Stanley nattering Jack Kirby into doing a thing but, <laughs> um, and taking the credit. Yeah. But um, basically, all, most Godzilla historians and kaiju historians tend to agree that if you were to go ahead and describe someone as being Godzilla's creator and Godzilla's father, it would be the producer, Mr. Tomoyuki Tanaka, um, if you had to pick one person. Uh, famously, Tanaka was producing a film when he got the go, the, the go ahead to be working at Toho on this film. The original film that he was actually meant to work on was a post-war story about Japan and Indonesia. So I believe that that film was called um, In the Shadow of Glory, um, uh, Eko no Kagini. In short, relations between Indonesia and Japan were not great after the war. And unfortunately, relations were still prickly enough that that film you know, fell through. Tanaka had to do something. There's a story that is told and told by, by Tomika Tanaka himself to the point that it's somewhat mythologized and probably exaggerated, but yeah. it is the story. The story goes that on the plane flight after things and negotiations fell through for the Indonesian movie, uh, looking out the window reminded him of the H-bomb, of, of H-bomb tests and specifically, which we'll get into a little bit later, the Lucky Dragon number five incident. Mm-hmm. And just thoughts of nuclear radiation and the stuff that it's done to the Japanese people. And from there, sparked the idea of this movie to talk about radiation in Japan, which would become a giant monster film. Now, again, I, I do say most most people agree that Tanaka is Godzilla's creator, but he's not an artist. He's not <laughs> a writer per se. They talk about him being a producer, being someone who wanted to act, but uh, dis- discovering he didn't have the chops dramatically, but could produce. But here's what he did. He did have this idea, but Godzilla 
basically becomes this work of several of, of several folks shaping an idea. It's not necessarily I have come up with this cool dragon and he will be called Godzilla. <laughs> it's this it's this cause and effect to I want to talk about the effects of, of radiation and, and Japan post-war. Let's do a monster movie. Let's do a monster movie like King Kong reaching out to Eiji Tsuburaya, reaching out to Ishiro Honda through the relationships of being in Toho. Hiring uh, Ikifube. Yes, hiring yeah. Ikifube. Um, uh, it, you know, even the process, you know, eventually, uh, yeah, you know, Tsuburaya is the one who molds him, but uh, I believe they reached out to a mangaka even, I believe, to come up with the design that more or less fell through. There were some designs that the Japanese comic book artists did, one of which being a monster with, like, a uh, eight with, with a mushroom cloud for a head yeah. that just did not work. But finally deciding on uh, like a dinosaurian figure melding of T-Rex, Iguanodon and, and Stegosaurus that eventually got us there. Uh, Emily mentioned earlier, one of the other monsters from this beast of 20,000 leagues under the sea was, a, <laughs> was a squid, but it was called project G for the longest time. And G didn't even stand for Godzilla it stands for giant. Yeah. But basically Tomika Tanaka basically got the ball rolling to get us to get us to Godzilla. It's not quite someone have, you know being beamed in the head with an apple, yeah. but it's still a genesis point. And it, it not only did he kind of come up with the idea that got us to Godzilla, he saw us through. He was the producer of Godzilla all the way through the '90s when he passed in '97. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's almost a Japanese idea too that this collaboration does get us Godzilla. Um, even the name isn't based on anything but. A combination of Kujira, which is Japanese for whale, and Gorilla, you yeah. know, which becomes Gojira, which becomes Godzilla. All these people pool together their resources, um, and and again, like this film. Part of the remarkableness of this film is innovation through uh, through flying through the, by the seat of your pants. And to kind of like bring up the fact that the inspiration comes from like post-war. Let's kind of dive into that a little bit more. I mean, like, the fact that, like, that kind of is interesting because, like, you have all these folks creating a film because this is still a fresh thing to them. Creating films around the war before you even get to Godzilla. Honda was directing military movies. And famously, uh, Eiji Tsuburaya gets to start what he builds his reputation on is model work in movies about the war. A movie about Pearl Harbor is the one that puts Tsuburaya on the map. One of the most famous things he does before Godzilla is a movie that illustrates the actual attack. And he does the effects so well that the U.S. government liaisons thought that they that they were able to, to squirrel away war footage. <laughs> it was all made... Again, when people talk about, about Japanese effects work being penny-ante, that's bull because Tsuburaya was such a master of his craft that he made hyper-realistic versions of the attack with miniatures of battleships and warplanes. And when you think about Godzilla and the movie that it is, it's easy to look at a lot of the production and be like, well, monster movies are popular, so they wanted to make a monster movie. Like, It's easy to think of it as a money decision, but so much of about what made it the movie it was was the fact that it was made in post-war Japan. You watch interviews with anyone who's involved, and all of them talk about their experiences during the war and how that led them to where they were being in the movie. Nakajima talking about how like being in the Navy and all that work is what like prepped him to be able to survive being in the Godzilla suit. Right. Um, you talk about Ikafu maybe and like coming off working for the Forestry Service and mm-hmm. you know having weird mixed feelings about having to like burn his research before the Americans found it and just not really you know not wanting to do that with his life and yeah. that kind of led to him making music for film. 
everyone was so impacted. Everyone Hon- making the yeah. movie. Honda was, I believe, I believe Honda was a prisoner of war even for a little bit. He, the aftermath of the war left a lot of people who were very critical of war. It's obviously in the national zeitgeist at the time. You know, this is only 10 years after, but it's also, it looms big in the personal lives of everyone making the film. Um, and it's the global story. It's the story of the world at this point, too. Mm-hmm. Here's the funny thing, because we're, especially as an American podcast of Americans who love Godzilla, you know, we are in the States, but the atomic age is being ushered in. Everyone has a piece of it and has thoughts about it. And one of those things that's the dividing lines, like Japan's not that different from America because America's making atomic movies, too. Basically, it's 1954. America's taking their stab too, but the difference is America's making them. America's mm-hmm. making War of the Colossal Beast and the Amazing Colossal Man. Mm-hmm. We're mo- they're making movies about atomic energy, but about atomic energy in a way that is where the heroes are the military and science and the military will save the day. Mm-hmm. That's not the viewpoint of Japan. No, not at all. Because the American narrative is, is, you know, the atomic bomb saved us yeah. from World War II. It's the thing that ended the war and, and ended this mass horror. Whereas from Japan, you know, you've got the trauma of Hiroshima and Nagasaki looming over them. The atomic bomb is the horror of the war. Yeah, 100%. Um, to this day, and God willing it stays this way, but to this day, they are the country who had to experience atomic weapons being released on them. And that's the burden that they had to carry heaviest in 1954, but a burden they carry to this day. It's a perspective that we can never understand. Yeah, yeah, true. And not only that, but shortly before the film, there was an incident with the Lucky Dragon 5, a fishing boat from atomic testing. Not even from the bombs that were dropped on Japan, but from testing offshore. People ate irradiated fish. People got very sick. At least how many, one person died? Have more than one? I, I think more than like three, I want yeah, to three. Three, yeah. yeah. A few people died. So it was like, you know, it was this thing that that just they could not escape. Like, yeah, and yeah. For Japan, it's just another thing. Again, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and this. And it's just part of the Japanese character and spirit is persevering through this kind of thing. By connecting Godzilla to these horrific events, you can kind of you can make the terror more real. But then also help people cope with the terror. Yeah. It's not just about scaring people. It's, yeah. you know. Text and subtext. Yeah. One of those stories we heard about when we were listening to commentaries talking about for the adults in the audience. And this was a movie that was very mature. Mm-hmm. The adults felt the weight. It became a way to, to, t- to talk about the unfathomable, the untalkaboutable. And bless them for the children. God bless that dragon rules. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the kids loved Godzilla. And that would be something that would shape Godzilla for the rest of his existence. (laughs) But yeah, it's this weird thing that even the somber film, the kids still loved him. And the adults kind of understood that horror. Japan's cultural identity is as survivors. And the funny thing is, even Godzilla's a survivor. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of my favorite, like, famous quotes from, I believe, Meiji Tsuburai is, even Godzilla's only crime, a kaiju's only crime is being too big for the world that they live in. I mean, this kind of leads to an angle that I hadn't really thought of until I saw, there was an interview with uh, uh, Tadao Sato on the Criterion disc. He's a Japanese film critic who had reviewed the film at the time and was reviewing it again for Criterion. He pointed out how interesting it is that, you know, Godzilla in a lot of ways is a stand-in for the nuclear bomb, and yet we are also asked to empathize with Godzilla. Right. You know, we see that Godzilla is clearly in pain. We see that Godzilla is a living thing. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that, that skin texture was... was actually, I didn't even know about this list. The skin texture is supposed to evoke the burn scarring of, a, of an atomic blast. Exactly. Right? You know, you start to think about why in this movie about the atomic bomb, why are, why are we being asked to empathize with the bomb, right? Right. And a, a big part of that is that as far as the world was concerned, Japan was the bad guy in the war. Right. You know, after the war ended, I think 
people worldwide pretty pretty much got the idea that the Nazis were not good people. Um, <laughs> a correct and, notion. Yeah, a correct notion. It's important that we say that in let's, 2019. Let's yeah. make that distinction. Go Godzilla. We don't like Nazis. Yes, right. this, we, I want to make it known. This podcast is explicitly anti-Nazi. Yeah, please. Um, know that we don't. And the, and the Japanese fought on the same side as them. So it's like, you know, there, there were horrific things done to them. And then them as a nation, like, participated in horrific mm. things as well. Boy, you got to carry that weight, carry that weight a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then again, like that, leading back into the personal lives of, of the people in the film, like obviously the war is very horrific for them, but, you know, Ikefubi talks about the weird guilt that he felt after the war. Mm, right. And so they're not just processing the trauma of what was done to them, which was a separate, horrific, unnecessary thing. Mm-hmm. But then also, you know, their their part in the war. Culpability. And and what emerges is, is I think, a very... Uh, as you pointed out, somber, very mature film about about just a, a, a cry for humanity, basically. Right. Yeah, con- consider that, you know, of course, one of the stars of the movie, you know... Like, one of uh, the lead characters. One of the lead characters, yeah. you know, Dr. Serizawa, the one that you think of the most, because he's the one the eye patch, right? He's yeah. the one they named uh, Ken Watanabe after. Yeah. He looks like the character you'd expect to be the mad scientist in the movie, but he's haunted. And yeah. part of why he's haunted is subtext, because he was a scientist in the war. Right, and so. they, you know, they don't shy away from it either. There's even there's a very point mo- moment in the film where they ask him if he'd collaborate, if he if he worked directly with with Germans with the Nazis, and he says no. But it's in a it's in a way where he probably did. Yeah, and that's you kind of that that's such an interesting character to put in this movie. Someone who the whole reason he doesn't want to kill Godzilla, the whole reason he doesn't want to create something that will is capable of mass destruction, is yeah. because. He's trying to put that behind him. Yeah, yeah. more to the again, like, like, like Sirizawa becomes the key to saving the world essentially, yeah. and yet his fear, that responsibility, his inability to act comes from that responsibility. It's realizing that if we use the the oxygen destroyer to destroy Godzilla, it's humanity. And again, he was on the wrong side of the war once upon a time, and that and like using against Godzilla's today, using against the nations another day. Uh, the the math that Sirizawa ends up doing is a math that undoes himself, mm. and it's honestly again one of the most beautiful moments in the film is like Sirizawa being so haunted, but hearing that beautiful song that again that that cry for humanity mm. that song the from song. the children the prayer song yeah and that literally he says to uh, to Emiko you win yeah I will do this but again he's doing the math he knows I will do this but I have to do this in a way that prevents the world from ever making uh, making such a terrible choice and for me to have peace with my tormented soul yeah, yeah. to kind of go back a little bit on some of the some of the elements of the film that's kind of really like confronting the the horrors of the country that had to go through the atomic mm-hmm. uh, attacks yeah there are many like as right you're pointing out like, like there's scenes that literally mimic the real footage of, of yeah. the bombings there are scenes of people like, here's the thing like now the stereotypes of a Godzilla film is oh my god it's Godzilla run yeah. you know in that ha 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 kind of way and mm-hmm. when you watch this film this is not that's not the approach at all oh, this no. is horrific there's the famous scene of the, the most mom. haunting yeah. scene the, the, the whole movie no, the mother telling her children we're gonna be with your father soon yeah. is intensely intensely horrific and incredibly powerful in a film that's not meant to be fun, it's, it's not. No. It's not, terribly sad. Yeah, yeah. It, it's if anything, when you imagine being in Japan at the time watching that film, and you saw that scene, that 
that's kind of one of those things where you're like they're they're talking about something that probably no one really wants to talk about. Yeah. And imagine it's got to be hard to watch. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's yeah. It, it's still ten years. It's still fresh. Yeah. You know, tiny props inside just just as a tiny sidebar to to Ishiro Honda. Basically, Honda came up through, uh, you know, he, basically his works. He he did, you know, you know, he did go out of his way to make sure that that women were of, of of an importance in his works. I mean, even when he eventually did Mothra, Mothra was done specifically as a, a monster, a kaiju with with feminine appeal. But you know, considered that who's one of the people who wants to expose the truth about Godzilla at the big at the big you know meeting at the Diet Building. It's you know it, it's a it's a Japanese official who's a woman who insists mm-hmm. the, the truth has to yeah. be told. Who is it again in that most haunting scene of the movie? A mother telling her children they'll be with their father. Who saves the day? Sirizawa. Why does Sirizawa save the day? School girls singing a yeah. prayer song for peace. This Godzilla movie getting made at this time was kind of a one a miraculous thing. Yeah, because. On paper, it's a weird idea, right? <laughs> We're going to make an extremely heavy movie dealing with issues that are extremely hard to talk about. And we're going to do it, uh, with, and there's going to be a giant monster in it. Right. And the giant monster is going to be using a style of animation or, you know, a style of special effects that has never been seen before. Right. And yet, you break down, there. there's a clear path between what was going on at the time. You can, you can see how all of those decisions got made. Yeah. And how everyone had to do their job spectacularly because if one of these things had failed you could easily see how the whole movie would fall apart oh no for sure and it's and that's kind of the the reason we still talk about it 65 years later yeah is the fact that all these um, this is the it's it's one thing to make a monster movie yeah and and you know as we've pointed out hollywood's been making monster movies yeah it's another to make a movie that has a purpose yeah even in in, even in the blanket of a genre film Mm -hmm. and like godzilla and King Kong, the reason those two kind of remain timeless or remain like uh, important is that they both sat had something really, uh, really important to say or something really emotionally to say. Yeah, monster movies with a heart of humanity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, here's a tiny spoiler for all of you who are going to be on this ride with us. Godzilla in 1954 is wholly unlike whatever you expect a movie about a monster in the 1950s going to be. Yeah. The second movie is exactly the movie you think <laughs> yeah. it is. We'll get there. Well, yeah, that'll be next month. Yeah. Do we have anything else we'd like to say? We won't go too deep into yeah. this, but it, it would be unfair if we don't touch ever so small mm-hmm. the American version of the film, which more folks will probably be more known, will know yeah. more about, which is Godzilla King of the Monsters, the American cut. Yes, I see. The Steve, no. <laughs> Did Steve Martin end the room? <laughs> yes. And for those who have not seen King of the Monsters, Steve Martin refers to the character in the film. Mr. Not the actor. Not the Steve famous Martin banjo player. Performer. <laughs> Goodness. But yes, well, we got we to give a shout out to old Perry Mason, old Ironsides. Yeah. Um, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, 1956. Not the movie Godzilla 1954 is. But still, in a lot of ways, remarkable for existing. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not the preferred way to watch this movie. If anything, consider a glorified DVD extra if you ever get around to seeing it. It now. is literally a DVD extra yeah. on the Criterion. <laughs> but also consider the this blessed age we live in, because for years, especially as a little as a wee little G fan in the 1990s, the only way to watch this movie for me was Godzilla: King of the Monsters. The only way to ever watch this film was a compromised version. But it was a compromised version that was done, you know, done to the ability it needed to be. We wouldn't, the thing is, Godzilla wouldn't be a worldwide phenomena if Godzilla King of the Monsters didn't succeed. And it did succeed. Yeah. And honestly, 
despite the fact that Mr. Burr knocked out those scenes in about a day, he is very good with Steve <laughs> Martin. Yeah. He does add a gravitas. They do have to rework the entire plot to make that's a thing. Before Power Rangers and Power Rangers, <laughs> once upon a time, the folks did uh, uh, took a, a movie about the psychological trauma of the atomic age and, uh, and being in Japan and made it about an intrepid American reporter finding about the story. Mr. Martin is, an, is your self-insert OC because he's friends with Dr. Sirizawa. <laughs> he's an old colleague of, of, of Dr. Yamane. Uh, he talks to, to Ogata and Emiko. Their backs are always turned, <laughs> but he sure does talk to them. And again, like, like you know, it's, it is what it is, but it, it is an important part of what becomes Godzilla's uh, success. And again, Godzilla's an international success. Everyone knows who Godzilla is. Godzilla King of the Monsters does light that torch and create that interest, especially from, 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 from kaiju fans and G-fans, to when they demand the real deal, and we do eventually get it. Thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so that was Godzilla 1954. Join us next month for Godzilla Raids again. Mm-hmm. A.K.A. Gigantus, the fire monster. Wait, yeah. really? I did not know that, actually. <laughs> we, we, will, we will talk about that. We'll get into that next month. Go Go Godzilla is a production of the Benview Network. You can find this and other podcasts like it at BenviewNetwork.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GoGoGodzillaPod. And you can email us at GoGoGodzillaPod at gmail.com. You can find me personally at VeryCoolEmily everywhere you search on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at VicPerfecto. You can find me on Twitter at Justin Kizan, Instagram at Justin Quiz. I also co-host the uh, Nothing New podcast with Andrew Lindy on the same network. And also, uh, you can check out my uh, interviews on ScreenRant.com.